Hello and welcome to the Venn Diagram, the latest program from Multilingual Media. And my name is Tucker Johnson and I'm here today with the host of the Venn Diagram, Michael Reed, who is just one of the most knowledgeable guys that I know in this industry, um, in, in, in about geopolitics, geo, geocultural stuff, language. He's a linguist. I'll let him introduce himself later because after all, this is his show. But since we're just getting started off here, let's give, um, really quickly, what are we doing here? What are we trying to do with this new show that we're doing here, the Venn diagram? And we're calling it the Venn diagram because we want to talk about Things that intersect with each other, such as business, such as culture, such as language, such as technology, all of these things that we work with on a day-to-day basis, but yet we like to talk about them in different formats in different ways. So we're going to bring them all together into this new somewhat long-form videocast-type program here called the Venn Diagram. And that is my... (laughs) My glorious intro, Michael. Um, I liked it. Is, I liked it. I thought it was good. Well, well, thank you, sir. Um, and thanks for agreeing to do this here. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I, you notice I, I'm over here on the right-hand side of the screen, which means you're going to be running this show here. So why don't you give us a little bit of an intro about, you know, who are you? All right. All, what is your relationship to multilingual? What is your relationship to the work that we're doing here? And what is your vision for this show that we have? Who am I and why should you listen to anything I have to say? Exactly. <laughs> no, it's a legitimate question. Well, of course, as, as you so capably introduced me, my name is Michael Reed. I am the managing editor of Multilingual. I got into this industry about 24 years ago. I started as a translator and interpreter. And then I took an extended detour through higher ed as a language professional or a language professor, pardon me, and an administrator. And then after I left higher ed, I came back to my first love, my first passion, which was, of course, linguistics, translation and the language industry. And I was fortunate enough to become managing editor of multilingual. And that's that's how I find myself here. That's my relationship to multilingual. And this is that's why I do what I do. So, and I was really excited for the opportunity to do a show like this because like you said, there are so many things that go into what we do. It's not just language, it's politics, it's culture, it's symbols, right? Symbology, all of these things, technology as well. Um, as we've, I think we'll probably get to one of those stories today. And it, all of these things have a direct impact on our lives, whether we realize it or not. And sometimes we don't even realize what all of the intersections are. So I'm, I'm just really happy to have a vehicle to talk about those things. Cause I think there, there are people who, who really care about them and maybe aren't even aware of some of the ways in which these things intersect. Right. And this isn't, this isn't coming out of the blue either, right? Like we've been, um, Tell us a little bit about the background on where this material, the material, the topics that we're talking about, where it comes from, what we do. Um, talk about that. So this all sort of started as uh, the project, the the guilt call. I believe that's the that's your official name for it. the guilt. G I L T. It's not yes. the guilt. G-I-L-T. Yeah, not guilt as an oh, we feel so bad. <laughs> yeah. The the globalization, internationalization, localization, translation spells yes. guilt. So, uh, so without the U, just so there's no mistaking that. No, no 
white guilt. No, I, thought no. it, I thought it was guild sure. for a long time, like a guild, like a medieval guild. But no, it's I, guild. When it was first explained to me, I actually thought that too. I was like, exactly. okay, guild. Got exactly. it. Got it. And then I saw the spellings like, nope, that is not it. <laughs> so, but no, in, in that call, there are a lot of discussions about exactly these types of things, the intersection of culture, politics, business, language. And as we were having those discussions, we realized that it would be nice to sort of bring them to a larger forum. And oftentimes there was so much discussion that it really couldn't yeah. even fit within the confines of and, like one call. And for, for so, those of you that, that we're talking about the guilt call here, but for those of you, why would you be aware? Uh, Michael and I uh, take part and we help moderate a call along with our, our colleague, Bob Drake, who does all the, does all the work essentially does all of the research and compiles all of the research and all of the sources and stuff. But we, we manage a biweekly call, which is a closed call with, with, uh, global brand leaders, so people working in generally in the globalization localization industry, but working on the enterprise side, working for a brand as either a globalization director, localization director, what have you, and we just have an open conversation about how are you dealing with a lot of the stuff that we're, we're that's going on out there in the world, and how are you leading your team, how are you leading your 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 brand in the global market, and. It's closed because we talk about topics that are not always um, the type of topics that you want to talk about in polite company. We get, we get into it here. But I think today, I think we're going to ease into this a little bit mm -hmm. today. I think we're going to start sure. talking about colors. Yeah, there That's we fine. go. Good. Right. Color is such a, a nice neutral thing that has no controversy associated with it whatsoever. So I think oh, we, can find, we can find some if we look hard enough. Oh, but... we can find some real easily. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and really quickly, guys, like if, if you're watching this, I'm, I'm, we should be going live on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, all of that jazz. But if you're watching this and um, and uh, you would like to join in the comments, join in the conversation. Absolutely. Um, we want this to be an interactive discussion. Um, so there have you. So yeah. the agenda today, colors and culture. So last time last time we met uh, in the closed group was last Friday, and we talked about colors and cultures. And it was really kind of a, I don't know, it was kind of anticlimactic. Because like colors and culture <laughs> is, is kind of one of these things that I feel like, <sighs> it's like chapter one of every like localization textbook. It's For like sure. colors mean different things in different cultures. Right. But I have never worked on a project that actually involved localizing, changing colors. Mm -hmm. Depending, I've and I've worked in this industry. I've worked in localization for a very long time. So that was kind of the conversation that we had, which is like, all right, like how much of this do we actually need to pay attention to, and right. um, how much of it is just like, all right, let's just leave that in the textbook where it belongs. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, you know, it is. I mean, you're really right. It is one of those things that is kind of like localization 101 in a way. You know, yes, colors mean think different things in different places, and that is fairly obvious i would think for for a lot of people and that's you know so i can see where it would be maybe sort of an, an anticlimactic discussion um but i think there is there is a space to talk about something that is a little bit more uh that's a little deeper maybe and a little bit more relevant to a lot of people i mean the first thing i think of when i think of the color conversation is the move in the last few months i was going to say last few years although it, it isn't just post 2020, um, 
but to expunge vocabulary like blacklist and whitelist mm. from uh, you know a lot of the terminology that's being used, especially in tech. And that, of course, directly relates to color and how what color symbolizes, right? The black symbolizing evil or the sure. thing that you don't want, right? Yeah. And white symbolizing the thing that you do want. Right? Black hat. Right. White hat, black hat. Exactly. The white hat, exactly. black hat. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think there is a place to talk about it that sort of goes beyond the, you know, it, in China, red is used for weddings, but in the United States, white is used for weddings or that kind of thing. Um, you know, I think there is something deeper because we can look at, okay, where does, where do these associations come from? Where does this symbology come from? The whole black, white thing. I mean, obviously in, especially in a United States context or in a, uh, in the context of the Americas, there's a, there's not just the symbology, but then there are the, the racial connotations that go with it. And so that adds an overlay to it that really needs to be addressed, but we can even look further back as to where some of those, where some of that symbology comes from and really start to explore it. I mean, the whole white black thing that has fairly deep roots, for example, in Judeo-Christian symbology, which is why it's so uh, deeply embedded into a lot of the discourse in the United States. But even that arguably came, you know, in, in Judeo-Christian and in, in the Abrahamic religions that came from Zoroastrianism, where you had the God of light and the God of dark. And, the, you know, the darkness was associated with, with the underworld, not the underworld, like the mafia, but like, you know, well, the, the you know, hell or Tartarus, whatever. Hades. Right. Hell. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I am sympathetic to the argument that we can look at, for example, the symbology of black and white people associated with something not necessarily evil. Evil, I think, is a is a sort of latter day overlay, but white people associate it with something frightening or mysterious because you think about the history of our species. I mean, electric lights are a fairly recent invention, right? Mm -hmm. And and it wasn't until humans had had discovered the ability to harness fire reliably that having any kind of light after the sun went down, if it wasn't the moon was a fairly rare thing. And of course the dark concealed dangers, right? You can't see if a predator is coming toward you as humans. Sometimes we forget we, we are part of the food chain. If you take us out of our houses or, you know, don't, don't give us something to protect ourselves. And so there is a legitimate case to be made for saying, okay, the dark is something scary and having a set of negative quote unquote associations with that. Now go extrapolating from that to skin color and saying, oh, okay, well, the dark is scary and contains predators that might eat me. Therefore people whose skin is dark are also now that that's a leap that, you know, involves a whole bunch of uh, cultural and societal interpretations yeah to the, get to. there were some leaps that were made somewhere along the line oh process, yes right oh yes no it it is you know there's a, a pretty long bridge you have to make to get from hmm there could be tigers in the dark that will eat us to hmm black people are clearly evil like <laughs> you know there's a there's a, a a long long ways you have to go but i think it is important to 
and, and this is not in, done in any way as some sort of apologetics for the the racist application of this thought but um i think there is some use to looking at the origins oh of yeah this symbology and i mean well there, there's two different things to look at there's the origin and then there's the intent right 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 and i think um you need to look at both of them Right, because oftentimes they won't. Sometimes they'll be the same, but oftentimes they won't. And um, but I, you know, let's let's get into this here. Let's what? let's get into the colors here. And you started talking about culture uh-huh. and religion, how different things mean different things in different uh-huh. um, things. And where, where is this infographic from? This is not a multilingual infographic. Do we know? It is not. I do not. Right. I'm going to have to put a link to this in the description because I want to yeah. make sure whoever did this because this is just great and mm-hmm. so I want to make sure people get credit for this. But it really goes through by each culture and by each religion. So with cultures, we have Western culture, Far Eastern culture, Indian culture, Middle Eastern culture. Yes, there are more cultures than <laughs> than those four <laughs> in the world, but this is what this infographic has. And then by religion, it has Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and Islam. And you know, some of these really speak to me, but um, some of them, it's like Judaism. Let's look at uh, Judaism. Just pulling one out of random here. Red symbolizes blood, sin, joy, happiness, and life. Mm-hmm. So, Michael, if mm-hmm. if something s- symbolizes two polar opposite concepts, mm-hmm. then how does it symbolize anything? You know what I'm saying? Like, no, if we get I... to pick and choose, because, like, you might pick up a red Bible and say, this symbolizes the blood. And mm-hmm. I might pick up a red Bible and say, this symbolizes the the sin, or mm-hmm. happiness or life, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I guess Judaism wouldn't use the Bible, but you get my point. Yeah, it would use the Old Testament. It'd use the Old Testament. Yeah. yeah. No, I do get your point. I think. Well, I, I'm going to have to answer this question sort of and split it off into two things. One, you say if something represents completely opposite concepts, does it really represent anything? Well, that's that's a legitimate question, and I think we can engage in an exploration of whether it really does symbolize anything if if the concepts are diametrically opposed but so let's put a pin in that for a second i would then come back to the question of before we can answer that we need to establish whether those concepts are actually opposite or not or is it just the cultural overlay that we're putting on it that says oh those things are opposite maybe in from the cultural context that we're looking at those things aren't necessarily opposite. I mean, let's let's okay. even look at okay. blood, right? Sure. Because blood can symbolize war, right? Because people bleed in a war. But blood can also symbolize life because you can't live without blood. And so they're opposite, but they are intimately connected by, you know, that that's the thread that connects them. Yeah. Life, either the presence of life or the loss of life, for example. Um, so sometimes when we're looking at things that would appear to be opposite, we have to look at, okay, what, what is this actually symbolize? What are the common threads? Or I'm, I'm so resisting the temptation to be ultra clever right now and say, what is the spot on the Venn diagram? But, but you see what I'm saying though. Save it for the second episode. I will. We're still working out the bugs here. I peaked early. (laughs) Uh, But where, where is that spot that those things connect? Where are the points of contact? And, to me, I, you know, I, I can see that with something like that. Now, 
that does leave open what we're saying though if something represents two totally different things and does it represent anything and i mean that gets into the question then if we're talking about localizing something we use a color that can represent this one thing or can represent i won't say the opposite but we'll say the other side of that thing what's it going to mean to the people seeing it which which of the so, possible interpretations will they pick that's a good point that's a good point and, and i picked one Excuse me. On the religion side, on this this infographic has two sides. As the on the left it has culture, and on the right it has religion. And mm -hmm. I'm always just fascinated by religion, so I go there. But let's look at the left side. So colors by culture. Picking one at um, let's, let's do Western culture. Um, yellow, because that's that's one of my favorite colors. Mm -hmm. Nimsy color. Happiness, joy, and caution. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I so. This makes sense to me now because, like, looking at it from my own culture, I I get I perhaps couldn't explain to you mm -hmm. how yellow can ha can represent all of those things, but yeah, that speaks to me, <laughs> right? Because when I think of yellow, I think of happiness. It's a happy right. color. It's a bright color. Right. However, caution signs like on the highway, if they want you to pay attention, they're yellow. Right. Right. So not mutually exclusive. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And to me, I, the, the association of yellow with, and maybe it's because I grew up in Western culture or mostly Western culture that that is, speaks to me as well. But I can see that association with happiness and joy because, right, yellow is the color that we color the sun. And ah. we think, you know, when it's sunny, we're happy, it's warm, all these kind of things. Um, Especially if you live here in the Pacific Northwest where oh, boy, isn't you don't that see the sun that often. Exactly. You, you cherish it when you do see it. Exactly. Um, but, but also the caution thing, like you're saying, um, but let's, let's go to red in Western culture. Okay. This is, this becomes an example of love, and the reason danger, this, action. Exactly. Love, but also danger, but also action. But like, this is, I don't see these as mutually exclusive. I see these as intricately interwoven <laughs> emotions, love, danger, and action. If you're not doing I mean, all of yeah. three of those things, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> no, that's actually true. That's actually true. I was thinking like it's love, it's passion, but then it's also stop if it's a red light, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's action, but it's also inaction mm -hmm. because it's the cessation of action is what red is supposed to indicate. Um, but really, it's not directly indicating the cessation of action. It's saying, don't do this thing. Um, it's saying, be aware, in other words. Right, like awareness. A heightened level of, of caution, which, I mean, I can actually sort of see that, though, because, again, red can have that association with danger because of its association with blood. And... I, blood is one of those things that like it can go so many different directions you don't have life without blood but if you see blood outside of you it means something has gone wrong so well and, and then there's the whole christian take on blood yeah, right absolutely. which means something completely well not completely different but it brings a whole another area of level of complexity into it absolutely absolutely and that 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 idea of sort of intertwining the physical life-giving realities of blood with the spiritual uh, understanding of of life-giving through blood so yeah that's that is i mean that the whole transubstantiation thing that's what that's all about exactly really. exactly 
All right, so we've gotten through two of these. We only have about 30 more to go. Which one do you want to go to next, Michael? Oh, wow, let's no, see. No, we're not going to go through all these. Oh, bummer. Are there any other ones that you wanted to call out, though? Because I, I want to get to the end the news section. Remember when we had the agenda, we had the end the news? No, I want to get to that. I mean, there actually is a fair amount to talk about here. But no, I mean, I think we've touched on it to some degree or another, um, you know, pretty well. So I'd like to get to the end the news part. Too, yeah. But we also have uh, this color wheel, also not a multilingual property. So we'll link to this in the description. If you guys probably can't read this, but this is super fascinating. That does look interesting. Yeah, that's it's definitely. I know it's not a multilingual property because colors is spelled with the British spelling and not the English, uh, American go. spelling. So <laughs> I would have edited the U out. No offense to those who use British spelling, but I probably would have gone with the American convention. As you should. You work for an American publication. Um, in the news. All right. Let's do this. So this in the news section, guys, um, for those of you that are joining us, like I said, this is our the first time that we're doing this. So this is very much like a pilot episode of this. But we do these sessions every two weeks, and um, there's always leftover stuff, leftover topics, because we get really deep into conversations, and there's stuff that we just don't get a chance to talk about. And some of this in the news stuff is that. Um, mm-hmm. And so we got three or four today. All right. Explain this to me. This is and now this this is one that hits close to home for me because a lot of my academic research focuses. And this is on, for I forget that this is going to be a podcast probably too. So let's describe oh, yeah, the slides here. Yeah. What people are seeing. So this is about the Maori people of New Zealand trying to save their language from big tech. And you know, again, this a lot of my academic research focused on um, in a, a lot of it was historical linguistics, but one of my main research focuses is language preser- language retention and language loss in immigrant and diaspora communities. And because of that, you know, underserved languages, under-resourced languages are really interesting to me and what those communities are doing to save those languages. Now, the, the thumbnail sketch of this story is that basically there is a growing uh, wealth of data about the Maori language that's being gathered. And some tech companies have approached the the Maori groups and organizations that are gathering this data to say, hey, you know, why don't you sell us some of it? Or, hey, you speak Maori, we'll pay you $45 an hour, I think was the price that I saw, if I recall correctly, um, to give us some samples of your language, spoken samples of your language for speech recognition. And that's so like audio recording. Right, exactly. Okay. Now, what's the problem with this? Well, well which is super interesting. Like I've I've worked on yeah. projects like that before, where you know someone's trying to train a multilingual imi- uh, mm-hmm. engine, so they need stuff to train it with. Yep, right. Exactly. And so typically they'll they'll throw that at their supply chain. They'll throw that to their vendors, and there's vendors out there that specialize just in this. Right, like mm-hmm. I I know Pactera right Pactera Edge right across the water from me here in Seattle area. They do a lot of that work where they're just tagging metadata and training engines and stuff like that. But they also need to find the content. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. No, if if you don't have the data, you can't obviously you can't train the machine. It's that's how that's how it works. I mean, it's you can sort of liken it to the the human language learning process. If you don't have input to learn the language, you're not going to be able to learn it. That's just how these things go. Yep. 
So that's that's completely legit. The question sort of becomes then, and it's a it's a multi-layered question, who should profit off of this? Because nobody owns a language, right? I mean, perhaps the, the native speakers of that language well, can be it, it, but... people may disagree with that because I I see that as the question that, that uh -huh. keeps coming up is we're talking about the, this question of can a language be owned by maybe somebody? I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that. Maybe it can. My instinct is to say the community of of native speakers or people who live their lives, you know, uh, for the most part in that language are the owners of it, but I'm open to arguments on the other side about that. I, I'm not even sure if language is ownable though. I'm, um, not, I'm not sure either. Well, I mean, I don't think there is a right answer, right? Yeah. And I'm open to arguments. You know, as you said, that was like, yeah, I'm open to arguments, but I'd rather have discussions than arguments You're right? because right. I, I don't think this is, because I, I think there are people out there arguing about this and they feel very passionately about this mm -hmm. and, you know, Good for y'all, right? Like, right. good. Everyone's got a cause, right? But right. Um, it, it's fascinating because people don't see it all the same way. And no. um, you would never see this. You never see, you know, France saying, no, Microsoft can't use the French language. We right. can't have access to our language and stuff like right. that. But, but that's a good point of clarification, though. Are they saying they can't use the language or are they saying that they can't have access to our data that we've meticulously collected? Because that's it, right? And, and that, I think, is what what we're getting into. And I think so. Two things here. One, I think we need to make a really, really clear distinction because there's few things that frustrate me more when, when talking about a contentious subject than people not being clear about what, what they say means. We need to make a really clear distinction between ownership or ownability, because again, I, I feel like it's an open question where, whether a language is ownable or not, and commodifiability. I think of it like this. Nobody owns oxygen, right? Oxygen is just there and we breathe it, but you can commodify oxygen. If you compress it in a canister, you can sell that. You can sell the compressed air, the compressed oxygen to somebody. So it's, a com it's commodifiable, but it's not necessarily owned, really. Um, and then whether it's ownable or not, I think sort of gets into a, a, maybe a gray area there. The argument here is not necessarily saying, no, you don't get to have this so much as, well, I think the companies that have have gathered it saying you don't get to have what we've gathered but they're also saying hey when you go into our community and offer 45 bucks an hour or whatever for somebody to give you that data that you're then going to turn around and sell back to us that's a problem so it's sure, it's yeah. who who is profiting off of it i think is really the central question here um and, and I think it's more of a live issue, you know, to go to your France example. The French, with the exception of in Canada, I will say, have to be fair about that. But the French have generally not had to worry about their linguistic resources being taken advantage of right. by somebody more powerful. They've got a few backup markets speaking exactly. their language. I mean, exactly. an asteroid could hit Paris today and there'd still be countries all around the world speaking. Don't, don't, and I know asteroids don't hit. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> Nobody's wishing this Nobody's will happen. Wishing just this saying. No, you're right though. Like France, let's say it like this. France as a country could cease to exist. Again, another thing that we're not wishing for, but France as a country, you're right, could cease to exist. Eh, and that would gotcha. not spell the... <laughs> Oh no, that was that was I'm a, a, I forget big that smoke, Bob, man. Bob Drake's not on this call. I'm just I have a hard I have like a knee-jerk reaction. I have to make fun of France when Bob Drake's in the room. And I, he's normally on these calls just because he gets so worked up. I love no, the French. I know. I, hey, here's the thing. Bob and I met in France because my degree is in French. And oh, I was nice. going to, we were going to school there. We have, so yeah, we have a lot of French speakers here. Um, but even if France didn't exist, there would be plenty of French spoken in the world. Yeah. So this is and really archives, electronic and otherwise, oh, yes. like the language and is not at literature. Risk. And, and that's the thing. This is more of a live issue for language communities that have been marginalized or minoritized in the past that have been uh, subject to punitive measures by larger powers. I Maori school children much like Aboriginal school children in Australia, much like Indigenous children here in the Americas, were beaten for speaking their language. Yeah. So until, until laws were passed, sometimes in living memory of a lot of people, to finally outlaw those practices. So this is essentially the Maori saying, hey, you beat us for speaking our language 50 years ago, and now you want to pay us a nominal you want to pay us a bare fraction of what you're actually going to make off of our language because you realize that it can be commodified is that really the right thing to do so in a way it's an, it's an argument about language it's an argument about culture but it's at its core i think an argument about historical and it's current power entrenched exactly it's that about was, power I was gonna say, it's power it's sorry about power structure i had i had to one-up you and exert my power <laughs> <laughs> by beating you to the punchline. Uko uh, would be proud. Everything's about power. Everything's about power, right? And in, in a lot of ways, it, it does boil down to that. I mean, I, it's I not a bad thing, right? With, a... with Foucault as a philosopher, but I think he's right about that. It, a lot of things do boil down to power. And, and, and you can look at a lot of things through that lens. Because if it were purely about language, if it were purely about culture, what you just said would wouldn't be the case there would be french people saying no 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 you can't do this or you speakers of any other language english speakers right i mean anglophones are clearly dominant uh, in terms of well, having language spread i had a, a professor so, one time who was a very much you know one of those sixth culture kind of people like just spoke 19 languages and everything and he came in and i only was with him for for two weeks in germany and he made a point that um I will never forget, which is, and this is before I even ever heard the term localization. I was not a translator or anything, mm -hmm. but he said that the the language that is going to get destroyed, he used a more eloquent word, I'm sure, but the language that's going to get destroyed the first is English because it's the one that everyone's speaking as a second language. And when people speak as a language as a second language, they're not speaking the poetry Mm -hmm. Right. There are very mm -hmm. few non-native speaking poets in any mm -hmm. language. Right. Very, very true. So what very happens true. is, you know, the 
English, all of the colorful, the idioms and all mm-hmm. of this stuff, it slowly starts to disappear as people mm-hmm. dilute the language. And mm-hmm. Mind you, I'm not complaining. Mm-hmm. That's fine. It's just a phenomenon that, that happens. And um, there, are, there is research out there that shows like the complexity of language decreases mm-hmm. as adoption rate increases. Oh, like, absolutely. The most complex languages in the world are spoken by like remote tribes, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. No, that's that. That's very true. There's a fairly robust amount of research indicating that Old English lost the case system that it inherited from from Germanic because of of uh, Saxon invasion, and a lot of non-native speakers starting start, starting to speak Old English, and they weren't familiar with the case system and so they dropped the ones that were you know and and the weak and strong plurals that the germanic languages are famous for that was a little bit too so you know a lot of it just sort of got kind of flattened out and then of course we have the norman conquests and that you know basically made english a a germanic skeleton with french french uh, meat on its bones um, but <laughs> to give you something else to make fun of, I had to throw more French. In a there. German skeleton. Um, my my native language, your native language, is a German skeleton with French meat on its bones. I love that. I'm going to steal that and use that. Totally. But, totally. but that, that's a great case study for like what you know. Because the question could be, what are the what is what is the tribe so afraid of? What are I don't know if tribe is even the right word. What what are the Maori so afraid of? And point end case. Mm-hmm. Point and right. case, right? Um, and there was a, there's a great video. I, if you're watching this, listening to this, I recommend you to go find it um, from this this gentleman Tehiku or no, this uh, this company Tehiku Media. What, what's yes. the guy's name? I don't think we have it on here, but they they published a, a a nice little video about this. It's available on Facebook, YouTube. I'm not going to play it because I don't want to, it's not my video. I don't want to get get in trouble for that. But very interesting, and I just remembered um, tomorrow um, I'm speaking to somebody. I'm speaking to Lawson Stapleton from where is he from? Where is he from? He's from ABC Multilingual, I think is the name of his company, and they do a lot of interpreting work over in Australia to serve a lot of Aboriginal communities over there. And, oh, wow! Yeah, maybe I'll, I'll ask him about this. See if he has anything to add to the conversation. I also I, want, yeah. want to get this guy from the video on maybe episode yeah. two. Yeah, that oh, that would be fantastic. That absolutely would because this is, this is a really, it's a complex issue. It's a a rich issue, and it's, I think it's really good when we're talking about these things to center the voices of the people who are potentially the most affected by it. Like this is this is the kind of thing where I, I want to hear somebody from the Maori community, yeah, somebody's say, hey. This is what we're feeling about this. And and here's the thing, because I'm quite sure that, that the opinion in the Maori community is not monolithic. Well, right? and I was going to say, I, was gonna, so, I don't want to hear from somebody in yeah, the minor, exactly. Maori community. I want to hear from multiple people yeah, in the Maori exactly. community because right. um, I don't know, right? Like if you just asked one, just using the French example, if you ask one French person what their opinion is, it's not going to give you a good idea of what everyone's thinking so exactly and it's not clear because you know we've gone through a lot of the the um published information that's out there already and it's not immediately clear um how how much this attitude 
this mm-hmm. request, this demand has been adopted and supported by the rest of the community. Right, right. Which is a really important thing to look into. Yeah. Because, it, because it's something that can affect the material situation of that community, right? Because this is, because it's about money. Mm-hmm. So it th- this, depending on which way the community goes with it, that, again, that could affect their material circumstances. And that's, that is something that I would say is completely within their right to choose one way or the other, but it will have an impact on but them and, and also deserve to be heard. Also though, who is who Tehiku media, mm-hmm. Tehiku media. And you just to read the first paragraph here, Tehiku media mm-hmm. gathered huge swatches, uh, swaths of Maori language data and built language tech, including automatic speech recognition, speech tech, Tehiku mm-hmm. media. They're the ones driving this, mm-hmm. right? This isn't the elders, Right. This right. isn't right. the social community uh-huh. preservation committee. Right. It, it's uh, from what I can tell is a uh, you know it's a company with a financial right. stake involved right. in it. And it's which it's, a financial stake that they're <laughs> entitled to. By the right. you know, I'm oh, not saying like sure. they don't. Yeah. They should like if they've gone through all the work of collecting this data on their language, uh-huh. they should be able to tell Lionbridge to say. No, thanks. Yeah, we got it. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that to say that they have a financial stake doesn't delegitimize their case right. at all. But it's something that should be made clear so that we all know what we're talking about. And, we, you know, we go into the discussion with a really clear set of who the players are, what each of them stand to gain from it, both, you know, immediately and maybe further down the road. Um, but, yeah, it's, it certainly doesn't delegitimize their case. I just realized, like, I haven't been switching scenes. So, sorry, guys, if if you're, we've got the um, up on here. Any other notes before you want to? You want to try to get to some other ones here, Mike? Yeah, let's see if we can get to a couple other ones. I mean, there will always be more notes on these things, but yeah, yeah, that's just the thing, right? It's um, interesting. Yeah, you're all about France today, aren't you? This is just uh, sorry. I'm just reading. All right, farmer. Moves 200-year-old French border with Belgium by mistake. This is okay. This is a nice little lighthearted one. I like this mm-hmm. because we talk about we talk about race. We talk about mm-hmm. uh, this is nice. Farmer moves 200-year-old French border with Belgium by mistake. So mm-hmm. a farmer moved 150 kilograms stone so he could extend the length of his land near the Belgian village of Erquilin. In doing so, he also modified the 200-year-old international border defined <laughs> by the 1820 Treaty of Cordic. I don't know how to pronounce that. So the border was moved by approximately 2.29. I like how they say approximately and then round to two decimal points. The border was moved by approximately 2.29 meters, enlarging the southern Belgian territory and reducing the size of the French village of Boussigny-sur-Roc. Wow, that right. butchered that. The the mayor of a neighboring French village said that if the stone is put back amicably, the country should be able to avoid uh, to avoid a new border war. Well, that's very that's very big of them. I know, right? So, so this is interesting, and this is just kind of one of those neat little feel good pieces. But also, it, it's you made a good point when we were talking about this in the closed group, Michael. It it speaks to, or maybe it was Bob, but it speaks to just how borders are defined, mm-hmm. right? Like we, we, I think we have a tendency to take for granted borders are just, they exist. They're on a map. We learned them in school, mm-hmm. but um, there's, there's 
a lot of history here. At some point, 200 years ago, somebody sat down and said, that rock right there, that's Mm -hmm. the border. And everybody agreed to it. Absolutely. No, we can, we can talk about this now. And, and clearly even the affected parties are talking about it in sort of a lighthearted manner. It's pretty tongue in cheek the way they're, the way they're talking about it. Um, because nobody is seriously considering having a new war between France and Belgium. No. So, but that's something that we get to say. That, that's I'm pretty sure America would in get involved. <laughs> oh, probably. That's just what I was thinking. If French and Belgium went to war, the winner would be America. <laughs> Absolutely. Because we'd find a reason to get involved. I was just, gonna, I was just getting ready. So I took the words right out of my mouth. We'd find a reason. So, I mean, obviously, but this is the privilege of, it's an artifact of the privilege of living in 2021, right? That all of us can talk about this and be like, oh, ha, ha, ha. You know, he was, I, because yeah. I, cause I have this image in my mind of this farmer going out to the field and this rock keeps getting in the way of his tractor. And he's like, you know what? I'm freaking tired of this. And he just pulls it out of the way because he can. And then he goes on about his business, right? He pulls it off just enough to get out of his way and then he's done. Then he realizes, oh, hey, change the border by 2.29 meters. Right. Um, But clearly, like you just said, and Bob said, this means at some point, somebody was willing to die over this. Hmm. Right. This is a this is a. Yeah. 200 years ago. You're right. Like nowadays, it's like, ha ha. Yeah. Move it back and we can avoid a war. 200 years ago. Right. No, 200 years ago, this would have been like, okay somebody going to pay. Yeah. And, and it, it makes me think two things. One that we, well, I guess really it, it all boils down to one thing, which is I always try to be conscious of what thing are we taking as deadly serious now that a hundred or 200 years from now, we're going to be like, Oh, <laughs> that's a and good point. Just sort of laugh off. I, you know, I, I, try to take the long view on things and sometimes even a longer view than what my lifespan is going to be. And I, I always try to be conscious of, okay, this thing that I might be really passionate about now that I might be really willing to, to go to the fences for in a hundred years and 200 years, is it even going to be a live issue for anybody? Will we have just moved on? Will it be so resolved in one direction or the other? Um, or, or so, supplanted by other issues that it's something that people just talk about in kind of a lighthearted way and be like, Oh yeah, ha, ha, that that's funny. Of course, we're not going to actually do that and then go on about it. And, and I don't even know what, what those issues are sometimes. Um, well, if I, we, you know, I always try to think of them. Yeah. If we, if so we what? did, we could, we would be richer. <laughs> Oh right? yeah, right. If right. if I knew what the problems of tomorrow were going to be, I'd monetize that. For sure. But um, yeah, it, it's a really good point. It's like, like you said, two hundred years ago, this was a big serious thing, and now nowadays, no one really cares about it. It's just kind of a ha ha story. Um, what is it today that we are taking so incredibly seriously, so incredibly seriously that two hundred years from now is going to be a footnote, if any, if anybody even remembers it, right? Right. Um, conversely though what is it today that we're not taking seriously enough there i was just gonna say yeah. that's the other thing because history is rife with examples of, of counter examples where there were things that we didn't take serious anywhere near seriously enough or we had a very 
interesting or attenuated understanding of and now we realize oh man that was really a problem and it has created problems that last into the the modern era so it i mean some of it of course is going to be dependent on new understand understandings of well let me sort of turn this around some of it's going to be based on a shift in relationships right now belgium and france are both part of the eu they're on amicable terms so they can just sort of joke about this between each other back in the day that wasn't the case and so this was much more of a, a live thing and a thing that people were, were would be would have been willing to die for but some of it's also based on different understandings of humanity and right. who gets included in the moral community right i think a lot of it is that you know things that were accepted to some degree or another at least by the, the parties in power back in the day are not acceptable now because we have expanded the moral community we now understand oh just because somebody speaks a different language or looks different or believes different doesn't mean that we get to exclude them from our circle of moral consideration now that's not everybody there are there are some individuals and or groups who think well if you don't look like us or if you don't speak like us or if you don't worship like us then that marks you as subject to some kind of, of lesser treatment up to and including death sometimes. But, but in general, our general understanding is that those kind of differences don't exclude somebody from moral consideration. Um, and so we look at things differently because of that. Something. <laughs> Did we just I turn a story about an old McDonald moving a rock into like persecution and death squads? Jesus, yes. we just we just went. Yes, we did. We took that. That went really quick, really dark. <laughs> I know it did, didn't so. it? But but the thing is, they're connected. They really are. Yeah. Because because it shows us how our ideas of who's our friend, who's our enemy, who's in the in group, who's in the out group. You know, the the those sort of anthropological considerations really affect how we looked at things then, and how we look at things now, and and what we're willing to what we're willing to go to battle for. I mean, really, really, if you want to look at it, I could see a future where, say, the especially the discourse that existed in the United States between uh, 2016 and 2020 about the wall with Mexico, I can see that being something that in 100 years, 150 years, is laughed at. Because relations oh. between the two countries have become so intertwined and so you know who knows in a hundred years we might have a, a north american union just like there's a european union and we have borderless travel between canada the u.s and mexico that, that's a possibility in which case you know we, we would look back on it and be like people people literally died going across the rio grande like there were that that was a thing that happened really yeah. Like, wow, like, why? Exactly. People, why? What, what, what were we thinking? What's a border, daddy? <laughs> exactly. Like, uh, what? You, you used to have to stop driving from San Diego to Tijuana? Why? Why would you have to stop? Exactly. What is driving? Like, <laughs> well, that's true. Right? <laughs> Drive, I mean, if you really want to be, be a futurist here. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I get it. Um, we've okay. got... You know, we got four minutes left, and I just realized I'm actually double booked. I'm supposed to be in another meeting right now. Oh, no! So, 
Let's do one more. You want to do Cinco de Mayo or do you want to do Five Eyes? Is the Alliance... <sighs> the... Man, man. Cinco okay. de Mayo, I think we can wrap up pretty quickly. Let's do Cinco it's de like, Mayo. Don't wear a sombrero. Don't wear a... Yeah, this is a big a big part of like what we talk about uh, on these calls are like, all right, here's this thing. It's happening. There's an event. Just don't do this, right? Like, like make sure your brand, make sure your company, make sure you don't do certain things or do do certain things. Um, yeah, how not to be racist on Cinco de Mayo. All right. And it really is. I mean, yes, okay, I know we have limited time, but I feel like this one is fairly easy. You're right. Don't wear a sombrero. Don't wear a poncho. Don't uh, don't go out and drink a bunch of tequila or, or uh, Pacifica and start getting really loud or something like that. And for the love of God, do not call it Mexican Independence Day because it is not. Cinco de Mayo commemorates the defeat of the French army. Uh, it was the Battle of Pueblo. And, and it's, it's really not even celebrated that much in Mexico It's really just sort of celebrated in that state. Um, and it's certainly not Mexican independence day. Although I am impressed that you've managed to tie almost everything in these news items to France. I, I, I pick a metaphor and I stick with it for better, <laughs> for better or worse. I, I, I ride that horse that to ran death. Through. I yeah. respect that. <laughs> but no, it's just, when I used to teach French, I used to actually, if I ever had a class that fell on May 5th, I'd be like, all right, we're going to talk about this. You think Cinco de Mayo has nothing to do with France? Oh, it does. Let me just tell you. Um, but yeah, like basically, because I don't think anybody has a problem with people who aren't Mexican or aren't Pueblan celebrating Cinco de Mayo. I think it's just understand what it is that you're celebrating. Exactly. And it, appreciate and respect it. The whole point of holidays is typically, unless I misunderstand holidays, the whole point of holidays is to honor something, right? You don't just have a holiday for no reason. Those are called weekdays and weekends, right? So if you're going to have the holiday, like at least take the time to honor. Um, and that honoring might just be thinking, it just might be knowing that something exists. No, exactly. Acknowledging, Acknowledging. recognizing it. You don't have, to, you don't have, you don't to, don't go. have to honor it. You don't have to be like, yes, I am a proud supporter of either the French or the Mexicans in the Battle of Puebla. No, it doesn't have to be about that. But yeah, just know what it is. Like you can me. still eat Taco Bell on Cinco de Mayo. Just know that that's not authentic. <laughs> right? <laughs> Just awareness. That's all we're talking exactly. about here. Just awareness. Just like, mm, these are delicious chalupas <laughs> and, and, and Viva Mexico in the Battle of Puebla. Alrighty. Well, so we also, guys, have an I Gotta Go, but thank you so much for joining us for it. This has been our, our first session here. We, we skipped this one. We're um, talking about China. Um, but really quickly, let me read this. The Five Eyes Alliance, an intelligence-sharing arrangement between the U.S., U.K., China, uh, U.S., U.K., Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, it evolved during the Cold War as a mechanism for monitoring the Soviet Union and sharing, sharing classified intelligence. In May 2020, the alliance agreed to expand its role away from just security intelligence to a more public stance on respect for human rights and democracy. Four of the five members in this alliance recently jointly condemned China over its treatment of Uyghurs and expressed concern around China's de facto military takeover of the South China Sea 
its suppression of democracy in Hong Kong. And I'm reading sources here, people. Don't get don't get upset at me. Don't put your links in the comments if you want. Um, New Zealand said it felt uncomfortable with expanding the alliance's role by putting pressure on China this way and prefers pursuing bilateral relations with Beijing. Uh, China's state media has made much of this talking of a wedge been the wedge having been driven between the two neighbors and allies, Australia and New Zealand. And while the trade war between China and Australia has been worsening, New Zealand has been rewarded with ever closer trade relations in China where 30% of its exports are sent. Now, you understand, folks, why we're not going to be getting into this today because there's a lot to unpack here. But um, these are the type of things that we discuss in closed groups um, because we can really get into specifics, not just about um, difficult topics, but also get into specifics about our individual um, companies that we work for, what we're doing without having the fear of breaking NDA and all of that stuff. But, sir, Michael. Thank you for, thank you for setting this up. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I did very little work except turning on my computer and sitting down in my chair and, and studying um, these topics. You're the one who did all the tech work. Bob is the one who got all the information together. So sweet gig you got thank here. you. Thank you to you who who did the actual work to make this happen. Yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, my pleasure, my pleasure. But you're going to be flying solo here pretty, pretty darn soon. Let's but, do this. So, guys, thank you very much for joining. If anybody joined today, this has been the pilot episode of The Venn Diagram with Michael Reed, where we talk about the intersection of language, culture, business, technology, and all the sorts of things that global leaders, particularly working for global brands, need to know to navigate international business. So, right. Thank you very much for your time. And with that, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Bye, everybody.